Welcome to the FX podcast. Though so, you know what? I obviously, guys, as you're listening to this recording, you would imagine that we have a chat before we hit the record button on the and so this week I'd like to like rewind momentarily and have Matt introduce this week's episode. This week on an all-new VFX show, Mike Seymour, Jason Diamond, and Matt Wallen talk about Barbieheimer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the showdown episode. It's the it's the knockdown event of uh, cinematic uh, history of this uh, kind of period where Barbie, for God knows what reason, became intertwined with Oppenheimer. Um, obviously, it, it, I guess, came from them being on the same date, though, boy, would this be something, Jason, that a marketing guy would dream of and never be able to work out how to actually pull off? This is kind of the most organic marketing connection in cinema history. Oh, yeah. I don't, I mean, has there ever been like an organic like uh world generating uh 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 tete-a-tete for for two films that the studios had nothing to do with no, like to your point no one in their right mind would ever like pit these two movies against them against them and i don't i don't mean that like in a in a fight but in the, like a comparative like they're obviously opposite in a lot of ways. And they're, I think they're very similar in a lot of ways, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the viral, it's the, the, the Gangnam style of uh, movies, I think. And, and I've got to say, Matt, like it's worked, but uh, the thought that you would, because I know the tradition is you meant to go and have Oppenheimer first, then go and have drinks, then see Barbie. Um, but to pair these two films makes no sense. Like, I mean, the, I mean, obviously it's funny, but it just makes no sense. And yet, well, Bobby, I think what's great is that you know it's these two you know really kind of tentpole summer films, and when they plan out, you know, the studios plan out their releases for the summer. You know, they pick these target dates, and they're like, you know, oh, we don't want to go up against this film, or we don't want to go up against that film. And for both of the studios, you know, this weekend was the one that made sense. And they both were like, all right, Barbie's coming out this weekend. And then they were like, all right, Oppenheimer's coming out this weekend. And I think just the the contrast of the two titles and the, the subject matter, it just it caught the cultural zeitgeist. You know, people were like, oh, this is ridiculous yeah. that these two things would come out together. And weirdly, I think, you know. Yeah, I think what you're saying, Jason, there's some odd similarities between the two, but I think that the it's a great like kind of accidental viral marketing thing that people kind of glommed onto and I I know so many people. I mean, I went and saw both of them, but it wasn't part of some, you know, dressing up in pink or anything, but I know so many like young people like my son and his home from college for the summer and you know him and his girlfriend and some friends they went and saw both of them on the same day and like they, they they saw Oppenheimer and IMAX and then they went and saw Barbie you know and it, they had their thoughts and reviews but you'd go to the theater and you'd see you know a ton of people dressed up and having a yeah. good time a lot of like mothers and daughters I thought which was really cool going to see Barbie it feels like that was kind of the the thrust yeah. of that movie this kind of weird trojan horse movie and then you know a <laughs> lot of memes uh, too yeah yeah and a lot of people but going like, to see um yeah oppenheimer but, too so but jason just answer me this right forget the tie-in for a second just barbie right this yeah. film is now the biggest grossing film that warner brothers has ever put out past the dark night when you heard about barbie just forget the oppenheimer thing for a second yeah, yeah. do you think barbie would be like this monolithic kind of mega film 
no, I mean, because you never, you don't know what, what tack they're going to take, right? Like it's, it's, it's never the title. It's the approach. Right. As I think we've seen in a, in a number of films like the Lego movie or, you know, things like that where, where, or even, you know, like another Spider-Man movie that's animated and you're like, oh my God, like someone was able to like crush and climb over the wall and make the thing that you think no one would be able to make given the, you know, uh, uh, certainly because of strikes and other things that are happening now in the sort of clear walled gardens that, that are always being put up by studios and whatever. And, and, and to the points we were making about like, look, you know, Mission Impossible and Tom Cruise being mad that Oppenheimer is going to take all the IMAX screens. But in reality, <laughs> what no one saw coming was that the studio is probably looking at the thing never was like, oh, we're going to go up against Barbie. You know, everyone probably thought Barbie was going to be kind of like, eh, it's a fun kind of dumb Barbie movie. And, you know, the cast, the casting maybe would have told you, given you a hint that it probably wasn't going to be that. And it certainly isn't that. I mean, it's we can get into our reviews in a second. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's 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 just like the mysteries of the universe. You know, there is a yep. there's just an unknowable thing that just happens. And quite frankly, I this is the one thing that makes me like have faith in just humans and general humanity is that these things can happen completely unscripted, uncoordinated in such a scripted, coordinated world that we live in. I think this is like, this is actually, that moment is actually Barbie in a sense, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in, in the message that Barbie tells as a story yeah. is Barbie Heimer meme, meme town, you know. Isn't, isn't this the embodiment of uh, William Goldman's quote that nobody knows anything when it comes to Hollywood? Like pretty much, you know what I mean? Yeah, ventures yeah. in the okay. screen trade, right? Isn't that his book? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so so let's discuss for just a little bit longer this combination of the two, and then like where we think the similarity are before we get to the VFX for a second, because there are some interesting controversies in just that alone, just on Oppenheimer. Um, okay, so so the films are in many respects, like when you people say that films are opposite, you kind of think, oh, well, it's positive and negative. It's like yin and yang, but a yin and yang denotes some kind of balance between left and right, mm -hmm. as it were. This is no, I mean, okay. So one of them's kind of digital and one of them shot on 70 millimeter film, but like from so many perspectives, they're not, they're not equal opposites. They're completely different, but they're completely different in like tangential kind of ways. Right. Like one is a, uh, a serious kind of film about an actual historical figure with incredible historical gravitas and enormous implications. Sort of the other one is about a toy doll. I mean, these are not like however the opposites. It's however, kind of the way this. you yeah, it's about but, that but the way you just but but the but the terminology you just used to describe Oppenheimer, you could use to describe the Barbie toy. And how it has imp its implications. I'm not saying obviously the gravitas is different. Millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people weren't incinerated by Barbie, but you know, uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> well, sure, maybe a hundred thousand Barbies weren't incinerated by well, anyway, it, I by mean, people. Yeah, it's toy, toy Story Three is is a yeah. Holocaust in in itself. You know, uh, okay, boy, but, but okay, so but but I'm just saying, like like. There are there are historical implications f 
for both of these these characters and Barbie is as much a biopic in its own right as Oppenheimer is to me. And I, 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 I guess I would, yeah. And I think I, I, yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I think I would say too, like, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, when you heard they were going to make a Barbie movie and uh, as I understand it, the, uh, the star of Barbie, Barbie herself, uh, the approach, the actor, uh, she approached, Greta Gerwig and asked her if she was interested in doing this project. And Greta Gerwig, I think, is a fantastic uh, writer, a fantastic actor, and has mm-hmm. now certainly proven herself in her last two films to be, and this third film, I think, to be a brilliant, fantastic director and filmmaker. Um, and, you know, she uh, found a way to take this narrative uh, or this this concept and create a story around it that encapsulates something that's very you know woman centric very female centric but has at the heart of it too this amazing like mother daughter narrative and it's the kind of thing you just don't see it that often in movies i think you saw it in her first film in ladybird kind of mm-hmm. had that similar theme and I, I guess there's some of that in little women although it's kind of you know we've seen so many variations of that but um and i think it's really omnipresent in this film and it also gets into this idea of these two different worlds and these two different worlds that have these two different paradigms right where there's kind of a matriarchy and one in essence kind of for lack of a better term and then a patriarchy right and they kind of go up against each other and i think the similarities narratively that we see then in at least the story that they chose to tell in Oppenheimer is Mm -hmm. this kind of a a similar kind of patriarchal structure. I mean, it's extraordinarily male centric, but then Mm -hmm. within the, the, the patriarchy itself and the kind of um, machinations that go through that narrative, we see both the rise ascendant uh, nature of this one character in the story they wrote and then sort of the deconstruction of that character too through a kind of you know (laughs) dick battle or something right with these (laughs) kind of uh uh personalities that are competing with each other based on these kind of in the case of the uh johnny jr character kind of the this kind of fragile ego kind of um but but it's interesting, I, and then I mean, it's all centered around I, I, I just, around I just kind to, of just like destruction, right? And like Oppenheimer yeah. is about is about Ken's. Let's just say it. Yeah. Well, right, hang yeah. on a second. Like, <laughs> Oppenheimer. Yeah, Oppenheimer is pivotally around events that cause a hundred to two hundred thousand Japanese to die. Now, I I have a, a nuanced view on whether they should or shouldn't have dropped the bomb, but like, let's not beat around the bush here. Like, hundreds of thousands of people died. Uh, Absolutely. For real. And this is like an incredibly serious subject. So it's like even feels almost disrespectful to be comparing it to a doll movie. But anyway, let's for a second say respectfully that the three of us agree that that we don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone. Of course not. That was not at all. um, Yeah. But okay. But then just looking at it cinematically for a second, right? You're saying, because I don't know, I find. Okay, for a start, let me just get right out and say this, right? Oppenheimer is just such a much better film than Barbie. There's just yeah, no totally, question in my mind. Absolutely disagree and, with you. Uh, same. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and for a start, I would say Oppenheimer knew what it wanted to be. And Barbie, while too. fun, doesn't know what it wants to be. 
I, think, I, I disagree I would, wholeheartedly. I say it's the absolute opposite. Like Oppenheimer, like, I think, is a movie that has no idea what it wants to be. It's a It's a thin remake of an excellent movie by Roland Joffe uh, from 1986 with Paul Newman, The Fat Man I'm and Little Boy, which is a film, far better story. No, I'm not and taking away that film. But it's I just a remarkable think that, I think there's so many, I, I had so many problems with, with Oppenheimer that, I mean, I, Hang on. I what about the get huge amount the... of problems with Barbie? Like, like the film literally just doesn't know whether it's trying to, it's trying to be everything to everyone and cover every base. It's trying to be feminist. It's trying to be retro. It's trying to be uh, like I didn't... dismissive. It's trying to be funny. It's trying to be, it's trying to be camp. It's trying to be like, I, I think, I think personally, well, Barbie had an easier time because of the tone, the ability to have tonal shifts, uh, tackling very complex issues and complex things. And I wholeheartedly applaud the attempt and I think the ultimate very successful approach to making a movie that is both broad that my eight-year-old niece could go and have no idea about most of the very deep topics and enjoy it because she loves Barbie and has a million dolls. It's the, you know, it's the Pixar approach. But at the same time, like I just went with my kid and he was like, oh, it was, you know, he's six, he's a 16-year-old white boy, right? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I it was like a seven out of 10, you know, it was cool. I really liked it. But, and I'm like, dude, there's shit in here. You can't get unless you're 30. Right. Like, and it's not a knock on him. There's just very, uh, worldview world centric things. You cannot understand as a 16 year old and the ability to layer all of that while making it funny, while making it existential and having the characters able to express the ennui and the drive to be themselves while to your point, Mike, also being incredibly ridiculous. Yeah. I, I don't very don't get me wrong. I didn't dislike Barbie, right? I didn't no, think I'm not that saying Barbie you was did. a bad film. Yeah. And and you know, like let's face it, the lead actress is a is a saint in my country, right? She walks on water, right? Well and good on her for getting <laughs> like, Robbie, you know, whatever yeah. it is, fifty million dollars worth of like uh fees out of being both a producer and an actress. Clearly an accomplished actress and an accomplished producer. So like, yeah. I take nothing away from that, but come on. Oppenheimer is a masterpiece by comparison. I, I it is so I, well I'm going to go on record here. And as I said, this, as I walked out of the theater, that Barbie is the movie of the year for what? me. Like, I'm just saying that right now. I'm not saying that that doesn't mean I didn't like Oppenheimer. I'm not shitting on Oppenheimer. I, I, I think Nolan, to your point, uh, Matt, he took an approach, he picked a vision, he picked an angle. I get it. But, and I, and his, the exposition was less. Uh, he went for this like lyrical approach in the first act, which I appreciated, where he really started overlapping action and to the talking and stuff. So I was like, okay, here we go. But ultimately, he expects the audience to understand very complex things with no explanation, which is the Lynn Ramsey approach. And I appreciate that too. But like, do you think most of the audience knows who Niels Bohr or Edward Teller or Heisenberg, you know, all these guys are and to understand their gravity and their 
attraction or Oppenheimer's attraction to them, which by then gives him gravity because he understands all the cons, the heavy shit they're coming up with and has the unique ability, which I think is what the message is to be the scientist and the politician, which is really hard to do. I think that was his true gift to be able to sort of distill it all and, and focus it to people who didn't understand what he was talking about and the complex guy, get it. Okay. Okay. It's just my, this is my feeling. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Killian Murphy's performance as Oppenheimer should get him at least an Oscar nomination, if not the best Oscar. Like it was. He should definitely be nominated. He did a fantastic job. Right. Cinematography off the hook, you know, all the cloud tank and all that. Sound recording. Non CG. (laughs) Like audio recording. (laughs) Awful. And, like Robert I don't, I won't do ADR. Be a, it's a stylistic choice for people. Well, that would be a mix, here, not a recording. Robert Downey yeah. Jr. Pre- presented a performance that like showed the range of an actor without the smirky, like you know stuff that um, he's. Yeah, I felt like it was. I felt like it was in his wheelhouse. I didn't feel like he went out of his comfort zone. He just took the. He just took the grease out of it. I'm not okay. taking it again. That's not a negative. He did a great performance, but it. It was exactly what you would expect from him. And Ryan yeah. Gosling, by the same token, did a fantastic job comedically yeah. in Barbie, yeah. right? But if we if we acknowledge that those guys are really good actors, like uh, the complexity of the script in not talking down to the audience and and managing to come up with a film where two-thirds of the way through the film, you have what would otherwise be the climactic atomic blast and then yeah. have a sustainable third act that doesn't feel like it's just a an overrun, but actually is just as interesting, is a really hard directorial feat to pull off. Agreed. I agree. I just don't know like that it was successful. I guess oh, I, God, I, I, would dis- I would just disagree and say that I think the climactic moment at the end of the second act felt like, I, you know, what I said before, it was like, you know, like a big gasoline explosion from, you know, an episode of chips or something like that. Well, now you're talking about visuals. But it was so, it was an execution from a filmmaker who was trying to like punctuate this end of the second act in the film with something that was like, you know, it needed to kind of really be powerful. And I thought it was okay, so, so anticlimactic you, you telling and weak. Me it didn't deliver, not wait, just wait, wait. on the you basis talk, of the explosion, the but- but what about that silence? Like the silence between when the bomb goes off and they're just watching it. And then like obviously time, the time it takes for sound to travel is a lot longer than than uh, than, than light. So clearly what happens as an audience is you're watching them. The film is completely yeah. silent. And then you get that wave of audio hit you when the sound catches up with the I guess vision. It didn't, didn't. I left I, out of the seat. Right. I thought oh that was God. great. I, was but I, I, to Matt's point, I wish that they just left it as I love the bright light. I love that you didn't see it. I like all those moments. It worked for me. I agree. And maybe I was set up for it because Matt mentioned it before I saw it, but the, (laughs) I do think the explosion, I don't think it needed to be like, like fill the screen and be this huge, you know, like visual effects uh, glory shot. It did feel a little small to me. It did feel like I wanted just one shot from over their shoulders on the ground with something that you couldn't even see the top of. Like it didn't I think feel monumental. I, I, I feel like me. what was lost at the end of the second act by 
you know, attempting to create the moment, I think that they were really trying to create, I just, for me, it didn't work. And I feel like one of the things that when we're talking about, you know, the ramifications of, you know, historically in real life, yeah. of the number of people who, uh, you know, died in the actual droppings of the bombs in Japan, but also who subsequently through many years of testing throughout yep. the 1950s. And these tests were, you mm -hmm. know, affected by the radioactivity and stuff that they didn't really um, uh, alert the public to, or maybe didn't know enough about, or just didn't care at the time. But, you know, I think that the profundity of that moment and of those, the development of these tools uh, and the, or weapons of, you know, of, of mass destruction, that's literally what they are, but the development of these things, like I felt like the, the philosophical, psychological, ethical implications of that, I felt like were weirdly to my, as an audience viewer, like I felt like they were actually minimized in the way in which they minimized it both visually and I think in the end narratively after we have that moment then we have this whole third act which is more about this kind of weird political kind of pissing match of this kind of ego thing that in the end the only moment where it kind of comes back around where you're like oh that's kind of cool like the idea that you know that they were talking about something more important than the senator right like it wasn't about him or the Mm -hmm. cabinet guy or whatever he was yeah and and that that's a great moment but does it punctuate in a meaningful way the destructive nature of the thing they developed sure. or is it more about then about these men and about these men's egos and stuff and i kind of felt like that was less powerful as but if a, we as an okay, as an end punctuation on the on the total three hours of the movie can we agree that they could have done an amazing volumetric mushroom cloud of which the likes of which we've hardly ever seen before, but we know exactly what a mushroom cloud looks like, but they could have done a very complicated digital mushroom cloud, right? And if they had done that, could we not be sitting here criticizing the fact that they were romanticizing and effectively doing kind of violent destruction porn by producing this hypnotically beautiful, you know, spiraling fireball of, of stuff that we all went, oh, isn't it look pretty? Oh, oh my God, that's amazing. And in fact, completely sort of bypassed the implications of what was going on. Like, did we want to romanticize the actual look of a mushroom But I cloud? think in the end, they still bypassed the ramifications by not, they did neither, you know, they still bypassed okay. it. I didn't feel like I, they, there wasn't like, there's you know, a middle ground. There wasn't yeah. this de deep moral quandary that was presented, you know, succinctly and in, in or or um, thoroughly throughout the the what I, yeah, tail end what of the I, second and into the third act. It just didn't exist. I think I think to to this exact point, and and I agree with you, Mike. There's a there's a fine line here between like look, you know, extravaganza and glorification, but. It seems to me, and I think we maybe we agree, the whole point of that scene, that pivotal second act scene, is both the celebratory nature of, wow, like we did it and we didn't destroy the whole planet, which was a quote, near zero chance, which I get, you know, like I got the whole thing for that. 
But there is also the, oh, fuck, we actually did it. And maybe we shouldn't have because, wow, like this is, we know where this is, we know where this is going. And there's this hope, like maybe we won't succeed. And we tried and all the smart guys got together and did their thing. And I think that's this seesaw of we should do it. We shouldn't do it moment. And if the explosion had, I think the, the need for me of having a, a bigger explosion, not glorifying it, but big enough so the characters, you could feel the characters kind of shit their pants a little bit and be like, oh, what did we do? Okay, but I feel like what happened in that second between the explosion going off and when the sound wave hit them was a mm-hmm. metaphor of it it dawning on Oppenheimer what had happened. Yeah, 100%. A, and, and then there's this immediate kind of jubilation, but very quickly in the narrative, there's this duality of him realizing the consequences yeah. of his action. And even when he goes to the town hall kind of thing, well, not town hall, but you know the internal uh, gymnasium sequence, right? Where like he is like, there's everyone's laughing and rejoicing, but he is also kind of becoming immensely aware of the negativity of what's happened. So that wave mm-hmm. that came over him was about the effect it had on Oppenheimer, not the glorification of the bomb. So, I, and then the other thing I would say, and look, you know, I get your your points, but like there were there was subtlety and subtext in the stuff that was going on. The fact that those gorgeous visions of a subatomic possibility, mm-hmm. these which I'm sure we'll discuss in a segment to the visual effects, like these kind of very um, uh, abstract visual uh, pieces all stop at that point in the film. Like up until the point that the bomb goes off, he yep. sees the potential of subatomic. It's attractive. It's beautiful, warm colors. After that, nothing. There's just no more yeah. sort of warmth and imagination in his life. I mean, but they don't hit you over the head with that. They say, hey, I'm going to make an intelligent film. And we really hope that, you know, you think about it and discuss it, which is exactly what I did. Now, I grant you that Matt will never like anything that Chris Nolan does. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's you know, not true. I, I like the prestige. Pathologically. That was good. But, but the thing is, I mean, really, like, I just felt like I have thought about that film. I've pondered it. It sat with me. Barbie, I really enjoyed it. And it was fun. And I think good on him. And as I said, you know, I think Ryan Gosling did an outstanding job. It was very comedic, but it just didn't have any sense that I'm going to take that with me into my life. It was just a thing that I did. And I was, I'm glad that it was. I just feel like I've, I was... saw Oppenheimer before in 1986 at the movie theater. I saw that movie <laughs> and the version that I saw in 1986, I think is a better movie. And I think that the, the moral quandary and the consequences and the, the, both the jubilation of the success and then the frightening, disturbing realization of the reality of that success is better portrayed by, you know, Madman Murdoch from the A-Team, Dwight Schultz, in that movie than it is in this film. I just think it's like it's a totally different stylistic diff- approach. And the and the yes. I found that the the editorial nature of this film and the 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 lack of there's almost the only moment of silence in the film is the moment that you've described the rest of it. There's constant like bombastic music in these disjointed scenes that barely, I think, connect the story. There's not really an opportunity to a different soundtrack to you. Cause I just, there's did just not I feel like there's, there wasn't ever an opportunity to feel anything about any of the characters in the story. They kind of came across more robotically. And as these kind of, 
quips, you know, from scene to scene rather than any thread that constructed an arc for any of the characters. I thought, I don't know. It just felt well, like okay. it, it felt oh, I'm gonna so, say, sort of slapdash in the way well, I'm gonna that say, it was assembled. I'm going to say is that I was at SIDGRAPH and an MIT physicist came up who listens to this show. He said he agrees with me about Spider-Man <laughs> swinging and that he likes the that fact is that- That is true. Well, that's and, great. And he liked Oppenheimer. <laughs> Uh, now, admittedly, he had something to. Uh, he might have said something in passing about quite enjoying Scott Pilgrim. I can't remember that bit. But, <laughs> oh, I... but, but. So for those that are see right there, have... he just, he just, he, he's gonna. We're gonna have to take him <laughs> off the list. I could have. Like, I, I could have. No, 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 no. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> anyway, okay. So listen. So let's agree, if we can, to disagree, right? And sure. on this, let's go to the visual effects. Yeah. But also, so, I just want to interject that okay. I'm between the two of you. I I did okay. enjoy Oppenheimer. <laughs> so I, I'm fire, he's water, and you're lukewarm. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm the mud in the middle. I was yeah. so glad uh, when it was over. <laughs> I I I was. I, I actually have tickets. I have tickets because I didn't see it in like super gigantic scope. Uh, I just had I, because we were doing the show. I couldn't wait for tickets at in the city here at Lincoln Square, which is the. I think the largest screen in America, North America. I have tickets to see it September 3rd there with my kid because rightly so, he refused to see it in any format other than the largest <laughs> format. Uh, but anyway, I, I didn't dislike it and I liked it better than some of his other films, but but I'm in the middle. I okay, would highly know. recommend though, to I would just highly recommend to people who if no one if people haven't seen it like find the Roland Joffe he made the Killing Fields and he made the Mission and then <laughs> he made this Fat Man and Little Boy You're movie with mission. it's got Paul Newman You're on in a it. Mission. Yeah. I mean just I mean it's a great movie and it's shot by Chris Mengis who shot his two other his first two That's films fine. and it like should be a beautiful Oppenheimer. Okay. People should still but, see Oppenheimer, but they should also watch Fat Man and Little Boy. Can we saying? find any middle ground before we hit visual effects that both of these films have been a marvelous shot in the arm for films? Absolutely. Sure. I'd agree with and that. And at a technical level, incredibly interesting that someone actually shot like 70 millimeter film. I mean, forget anything about the plot for a second, right? The very fact that you would do that. Like, I don't even know how you, I mean, the statistics on like the size of the actual prints that are, you know, the weight of the physical size yeah. of the prints. And was like it like a few miles? It's a few yeah. miles of film and, and, or something? Yeah. And uh, when it just the, fit on the platter, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> that was and the, the funny size part of the rejectionist. Yeah. And just like there's a whole lot of really, I mean, how do you scan that stuff? And the a, visual a million effects? percent. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the other flip side, right, is how great it was that Barbie got so many people into cinemas and had such a, cross-generational or inclusive kind of thing that yeah girls boys young and old kind of enjoyed it um look anything that gets people excited to go to the movies i'm all for it you know yeah. so interestingly I, I think also like there is a cultural aspect to this that we can't like bypass and again i'm not talking about the films now but like my wife didn't have barbie dolls right she just didn't i, mm -hmm. I think her sister had one but like she didn't right and she was talking to a group of her professional friends my wife's a uh, serious professional woman she's talking to a bunch of people that like they weren't like judges and lawyers but imagine that they was like that kind of level of like proper you know uh professional women and they were saying hey should we see it because obviously we saw it very early and my wife said yeah i don't think so and then they start she said but you know it's kind of interesting because of barbie culture 
And as she spoke, they all started recounting stories about how they had enjoyed Barbies with their daughters and they mm-hmm. had, some of them had kept their daughter's Barbie dolls and they were like, oh, I had that, uh, that, what was it? The thing at the beach that was like an opened up like a hospital kind of ambulance. Oh thing. yeah. 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 These yeah. are apparently, <laughs> cause I didn't know this, these are all real things. And they started like saying, oh, I had that, I had that. And within like 15 or 20 minutes of them all gushing about this, my wife was like, forget what I said earlier. You should all go and see this film. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say similarly for Oppenheimer, if you have an interest in physics and you have an interest in science and you genuinely find historical things of interest, see the film that Matt's recommending. I'm not saying you shouldn't, (laughs) but also Oppenheimer is like a, a, you know, to those people like me, (laughs) phenomenally interesting film. So, so there are cultural aspects that would make people want to see these films in addition to the kind it's of- Oppenheimer's a narrative documentary in a sense. I mean, it's very, doc, you know, very historical focused rather than character yeah. per se. And, yeah. um, and I would want to say too, just like about Barbie. I think the thing is that it's not really about Barbie dolls. Like, it, right? Like that's, just a little the, bit. that's the vehicle. But I, yeah, think it's, it's, I think it's a movie about- mothers and daughters you know and about and human women, nature and about women's uh uh progress forward in uh you know striving for you know a greater level of equality i mean i think that's what the movie's about you know rather than anything else i think that's okay, its so, intent but yes yeah, well okay let's leave that alone um so let's go to the visual effects right because we're just going to yes. argue for forever and i look i enjoy arguing with you you're always you yeah, guys are fun. so no, no, you, you have such insightful opinions normally that I find them really interesting. It's kind okay. of fun to no, no, wind no, you up kidding. too about Christopher Nolan. Yeah, yeah. sure. No, that's entertaining. Okay, so what do we think of the visual effects of Barbie? Let's go to safe ground first. So uh, they, they obviously had a lot of visual effects, though there was a narrative on both of these films that they were kind of anti-CG, anti-VFX, which are appallingly insulting to the artists that worked on it. Exactly. But leaving that aside for one second, just a, just a straight take on visual effects. Do we think the effects were, you know, really well done? Or did you, some of them were quite stylized. Ken I think, yeah, I, think I would say it was, surf was highly yeah. stylized effects in Barbie um, creating a real kind of, um, you know, kind of almost like a, a, a musical kind of world, yeah. right? A very theatrical kind of musical vibe. It felt a lot like some of the, you know, Wes Anderson kind of films in the 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 formal sort of presentation of the stylistic effects. It, it was very much a highly, uh, you know, art directed, production designed kind of um, effects presentation. And, you know, the, the devices that they utilized in the sort of, um, they weren't, were they like, you know, hyper real complicated photorealistic visual effects? I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, there maybe are some in there, but it wasn't really that kind of film. It's much more about this kind it's, it's camp stylistically, right? It's a very campy kind of presentation. And I think that for the story they were telling, the world that they set out to create, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I was so, you know, I didn't really want to go see it. I was so dubious about it. I just like, I don't want to see this. I had no interest really. I'm kind of curious to see what Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach would do with the script. And would they come up with something that was, you know, could it really be interesting? Or are they just like going for cold, hard cash here? You know, (laughs) like kids cashing in, selling out. 
but I was weirdly surprised. Like at first I was kind of cynical and then I like kind of got caught up in the whole thing. And I think the visuals and the visual effects that were done, while not, uh, you know, I don't think things that I would call groundbreaking maybe, but like standard proven tried and true kind of compositing effects, some environment effects and as oh, uh, LED volumes and yeah. And, yeah. And all uh, the LED mm-hmm. work for sure. Yeah. And it, it like, to me, it's like, it worked for what that movie was. It reminded me of in film school long ago um, when I was in film school at San Francisco state, they screened um, Francis Ford Coppola's movie one from the heart, which is a, oh, also yes. a, a musical and a thing that he made on a, you know, soundstage famously and sat in his uh, Airstream trailer, the silver fish, right. And edited the film in real time. And it was this, you know, kind of a, a box office flop, but a fascinating experience. And this is a, it felt like that kind of thing. Like it was this contained world, this contained universe, even when they come to LA, it still felt like it was kind of contained in this magical realism kind of space. And I think for all the effects that they, they generated and designed and executed, like it was, it was, it worked, you know, it worked for the intent I think of the overarching visual style of the film. I can't think of, it's been several weeks now since I've seen it. It's hard for me to think of a, a particular effect that really stood out. I think they they jumped into these spaces. There's a, the whole uh, musical number with all the Kens kind mm-hmm. of in this kind of infinity space, you know, kind of departs from the world that we've seen and been in. And yeah. um, But, you know, all of it to me kind of, it w- it was woven together in a way where it felt, really fun. I think one of the really powerful sequences, which is somewhat of an effect, I'm I'm sure, like edit, but it's also very much an editorial thing, is the um uh the sort of climactic moment in the narrative where we see all this kind of home movie footage and it's sort yeah. of visualized through this kind of prism uh, or like a proscenium that's kind of inserted into the frame and we sort of see these home mm-hmm. movies and it kind of has this edge effect that accentuates further the kind of you know 16 millimeter eight millimeter super eight kind of home movie vibe and it creates this kind of pastiche sort of like nostalgia that i think in the context of the moment in the film which is all about mothers and daughters in that moment i think it's it's it was really powerful i mean i heard people in a it was a packed theater and you could hear people in that moment kind of like you know like you know, getting all emotional yes. or whatever. And, it was, oh, and I, I think that, that was cool. <laughs> like, that's a really cool, powerful effect, like a cinematic effect and maybe even some additional sort of compositing visual effects. I'm not sure. But, um, and so I think in that way, it's just, it was well executed across the board. Jason? I mean, I agree 100%. I, I, I thought to me what, I'm going to just go to this, section that Matt's talking about and the other two sections that of the like doc style shallow depth of field kind of memory from two angles thinking you know her her trying to Barbie trying to focus on who's been playing with her and she initially thinks it's from the girls POV and then she sees it again from America Ferreira's POV those two sections again because the film is so stylized and you go to this really like beautiful uh, emotional memory, uh, um, you know, Malick style kind of just 
uh, vibe of this beautiful cinematography, it's like double striking because you're used to the bubblegum kind of like Barbie thing, uh, which totally works, but it's, it's a great mechanism that they did to be like, you know, these beautiful moments. And of course, the one you're talking about with Rhea Perlman in the end, when she's like, here's what it's going to be like to be human. And you get this thing. I, I was crying in that sequence because (laughs) the successful part of it isn't even the imagery. There Mm -hmm. is an emotional, an immediate emotional beat that you get both from Margot Robbie's face as you're going into it and you're understanding, having been sitting through the whole movie, you know what she's asking for. It's like, you know, it's, uh, Pinocchio basically right yeah. I want to be a real boy and then you get that it's it was a beautiful it was a and beautiful there's shades moment. of Toy Story kind of in there too oh like of course with all the, of carrying the box yeah 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 and she's carrying the box and it's you're like oh it's a total Andy's room reference you know I think but, the heart of the of the story in that context and the heart of the effects like it's 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 pretty it's strongly integrated into the to the total film as a as a thing right yeah and the movie it's all that stuff is so well um planned out and so well thought out it's really tight i think yeah i mean the all the toys have an architecture to them everyone there's a there is a there is a known quantity that you can't fuck with where with the toys the houses the cars to your to the point you made mike about the ambulance opening up like all the the amount of hours that creatives at mattel mm-hmm came up with how these toys would function for kids to play with have to also, they didn't have to, but they smartly chose to make those also have to function in either a practical or visual effects way in the film. And everything had, for me, had exactly the right texture of plastic to reality to the backgrounds, didn't feel overly super comped. Everything felt real. It almost felt like you were on just like a giant soundstage that someone yeah. painted a huge painting on the back of the wall. Like nothing felt overly digital except for like when the Kens, you know, have their like those white like stars and and stuff that comes out. The, you know, the little graphic moments like when the car flips and lands and you get the little cartoony dust clouds. Um, yeah, because you know, the scale of the car when they're driving uh out of barbie land and the car's like just a little too small for them and and they do that wide shot over the top which is clearly of a miniature right they're not the people in the car that's funny it reminds me kind of the peewee herman movies too yeah interestingly yeah just that you say that it's like oh yeah i remember that in the peewee one of the peewee because it's because yeah because they they're sort of like a couple of super stylized moments like for example the transition to and from Barbie land where yeah. you have these, you know, like the space where he's trying to grab onto the rocket and the, mm-hmm. you know, they're right. on the bicycle and stuff that are like really super stylized, but also just, as I said earlier, like when Ken hits that plastic wave and he's like thrown in the mm-hmm. air, it's completely a weirdly oddly and the car going upside down. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't, I don't think I, and again, leaning into the fact that we don't need as a, audience and both as the filmmakers to obey the laws of physics right because we've already seen barbie like float, leap off floating veranda yeah. Yeah. and float down as if a kid were picking it up and yeah. putting it down like you get all, they they give you all that in the beginning and i think to understand like a kid would grab the car and go oh no it flipped like there is a subconscious 
the rules of the world stuff. are defined for yeah. us. Yeah. Like in a way yeah. that like, once you get that and you see it, you're like, okay. And then kind of all bets are off, but they don't ever stray too far from it too. Like it does stay like yeah, they don't saying, need it's to. all the things that are like, you know, kind of what you'd imagine a, a kid, a, a, a little girl or whatever. You know, well, how did you find the, things. when she goes to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking for a second, but the name of the crazy Barbie, the one that's been, um, uh they've got oh, a weird 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 barbie. Barbie. barbie yeah weird barbie yeah, yeah so kate she's McKinnon. doing this yeah she's doing the splits a lot in a way yeah. that kate obviously couldn't uh that's one of the few sort of really super obvious visual effects that had to look both real not horrific not sexual yeah <laughs> but also doll-like. oddly funny and doll-like yeah. exactly mm-hmm. yeah those are some of the i thought some of the more yeah, interestingly crafted visual problems yeah yeah, you can I didn't... the car going upside down is a kind of like yeah, a, yeah, of course to go that way. Okay, fine, whatever. I mean, I'm not saying we've done the badly, but it was just you know it's a, a more obvious sort of beat. Yeah, yeah. I thought. I mean, again, the rules. You know, then they explain it in the what a weird Barbie is, and everyone knows yeah. the kids like go and like crack yeah. the legs and whatever. Like I, I didn't even re- I, like it. Didn't even occur to me that it would be visual effects, other yeah, than just either. saying like to myself like. There's no way she's doing that all the time, but like, sure. But it never occurred to me that it was like a full visual effects shot, which is even when she's in the, in the end of the movie, half the time she's got her leg up the wall, you know, while she's just hanging out. Yeah. And it's, it's just very well done for that reason. I, I didn't jump out at me. It didn't feel weird. And it wasn't like, Oh, that looks uncomfortable. Like obviously that goes to Kate McKinnon as an actress as well, being able to sell that, the physicality of that um i just thought she it, was you probably know. like super limber <laughs> I, I i actually didn't even think it was an effect which you know yeah if, I, if it is visual yeah. effects like i mean that, that's a great uh you know execution like it speaks to um yeah it's it's realism actually or one, my other thing naivete. I just got a, <laughs> one other thing i've got to mention is i was kind of flabbergasted at having no real experience of barbies myself these uh legendary barbies that were discontinued that were peppered oh, right. through the film and then show in the end titles showing them in the end titles was like terribly important to me because i was like you're what like it pumps up her breasts with them that's yeah. what is that a bad joke <laughs> like what is that and then it's like oh my god they actually made that and i was like okay that's uh that was i thought a very clever thing but can i just ask you one other thing like I actually drove past the Mattel building when I was in LA for SIDGRAPH. Oh, yeah. And I just got to ask you guys, like, how did you feel about the relationship of the film to its portrayal of Mattel, given that it must have been Mattel that approved Mattel? And Mattel is saying yes or no to how much you can mock Mattel. And I mean, I think it's super, super smart meta. on their, it's I very agree. smart on their point. I mean, they're a, they are clearly a, mega corporation and i've done work for hasbro like i've made commercials for them and stuff and they're all super cool the people that i was i wasn't like i was dealing with like executives not like super ceos but any executive who had had already greenlit that script even before she gets to mattel you read that script like if you kneecap it there like you might as well just burn your money right yeah. so i think yeah, it's super no. smart also I mean, Will Ferrell, obviously, you know, there's a comedic, they do a comedic nature. It's like Brazil almost, you know, in its nature of how corporations work or like Hudsucker Proxy or something like that. Like it's, I think there's, there's, yeah, 
Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think there's also like, it, I thought it was great because I think that there's, it's a display of an incredible kind of confidence in, you know, who you are, what you, what you're doing, what you represent to be able to do something that I think is difficult, really, frankly, for a lot of people, you know, to, to make fun of yourself, to laugh at yourself, to be able to step back I mean, and like, to not take oneself so seriously that you can't like also make fun of yourself a little bit. And I think that for the, for a company to have the ability to sort of like, well, we're kind of mocking our executives, you know, within the context of the narrative and this idea of what we did and how we made this thing, you know, it's obviously it's it's what she wrote into the script, but I think that that actually is a smart thing to let that happen because who cares about the Mattel executives? There, it doesn't matter. Like no one cares. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny guys. they were even mocking the the found the uh, the maker of Barbie with the tax fraud stuff, yeah. which, <laughs> which I, I had think to look is up a on true Wikipedia. Thing, right? No, Isn't it is. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. Absolutely. And so, okay, so so visual effects played out well effectively and stylized and also you know a bunch of interesting tech there the we haven't mentioned it but like one of the big led volume sequences was the opening um 2001 reference which to your point earlier jason no one uh, except for at our age would have got that reference (laughs) yeah why that was smashing dolls no i thought it was a good story point right that like up until that point dolls were babies babies um yeah, it's a great. But yeah, yeah, the two thousand one reference is a pretty long cinema kind of reference for a young audience to get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it, it serves a dual purpose, right? Just much like these things, like and it works for the parents and it works for the kids. The kids don't need to know that, like, it's from this super long sci fi movie that you know some t- takes some people ten t- vision version watches to really understand. But it, then it also you know, gives you the story point that you need to know about the sort of the place women or, and little little girls had been and for a young to. A young person who might not know 2001 if they really like the movie and they then yeah. are like, oh, that was from this other movie to then go back and watch the sort of Dawn of Man. That would sequence. be a jump. <laughs> would, be, would be cool, you know, because then you kind of get the joke, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Hey, so let's jump to Oppenheimer's visual effects. So yeah. there's a couple of hundred visual effects shots. Uh, I think about a hundred made it to the final film. Um, it was a film that leaned in heavily to physical, practical effects, especially in the nature of uh, filming things that were visually interesting in ways that rarely done. Um, so leaving aside anything to do with the politics and the narrative drama for a second, how did we feel it? It looked. I think. For me, can I just say, like on a historical level, just looking at it as a historical film, it had a lot of visual authenticity in the environment work and in the just art direction and uh, production mm-hmm. design. Mm-hmm. I felt like it sat well in the period given, I mean, some of it was pretty easy, right? Because when you're in New Mexico, you're basically building something in the middle of nowhere. So you're not yeah. you're not doing New York in the 19, you know, 20s or something like in a way that um, that would dictate you needing to do vast digital matte paintings. But anyway, what do you guys think? I mean, I thought, I agree. Like also going into it with all the hype that we'll talk about in a minute of like, we didn't use any visual effects. Like you're not expecting them or as CGI, well, I guess CGI, was the yeah. actual thing, sorry. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I I didn't, other than the like the sort of um, the thing you brought up earlier, that cease after the second act is these like the turmoil in his head as represented by molecular and atomic 
and other things. Also narratively brought out by like, hey, we just found out about molecules kind of thing, you know, um, you know, story beats. I thought it was all beautiful. Like the cinematography in this movie is phenomenal, like as is in all of his movies. Uh, the fact that he shot everything IMAX for, I, I would imagine. He didn't actually uh, shoot everything IMAX. So some, I, sorry, I some gonna, of those. Yeah, I was, I was going to oh, okay. hedge some of that. But yeah, I mean, you, you probably have the more statistics. Some of it's probably uh, 70 mil or 70 mil. Some even, of it is th- Even IMAX, 35. 35, yeah. Because they were trying to shit up to like 450 frames a second or something. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You're not going to do that in IMAX. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, it all felt very visceral, very tactile. Like I couldn't, I couldn't probably tell you where any of the visual effects are in this movie because it just, they all sat in really well, felt, like I said earlier, like very documentary um, stylistically in terms of everything being real, everything being of the time, of the moment, the locations, I'm sure they were extended or matte paintings or, you know, environment work, but it didn't really jump out. It but wasn't were they? Like of... if there's no CG in the... Well, no, I, I don't know. I'm speculating. I know Mike, Mike said environment, so I didn't know what was added. You know, I, I don't know what was added to this particular film. The um, the stuff that I was referring to is a lot around because, like, uh, if they were shooting, say, elements at high speed on say thirty five, and they needed to retime those and stuff, they were having to scan those in and like just digitally oh, okay. retime those shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you're uh, talking about actually, like the sparks and things, like the kind of thermite yeah, looking. Yeah, stuff. the turmoil, the turmoil. Yeah. They, they had a lot of. So Andrew Jackson was the production supervisor, Andrew having previously done um, uh, Tenant, and uh, and Dean Egg was the main effects house, well, the effects house that was doing the digital work, certainly. And it was, as I said, I think 100 out of a couple of 100 shots. We've got something coming up with Andrew on uh, FX Guide, so I won't like preemptively tell his anecdotes. Um, but Andrew, as we've discussed in the past, is Andrew Jackson somebody I used to work with, and he is incredibly open to whatever is the right solution, but he's mm-hmm. particularly very good with his hands. So as a digital guy, he's got a knack for just going out to his shed and making stuff. So back in the day when we were doing commercials or whatever, he would just as easily come up with a mechanical rig to shoot an actual watch than he was make a digital watch, right? He just, he mm-hmm. just doesn't see any kind of... Um, and so if the director, as is the case here, wanted to shoot things as much as possible, then Andrew is a great guy to head that up because he has no he has no agenda and no desire to do anything other than deliver the stuff that the director wants and the way the director wants it. Um, and so clearly it wasn't a big effects film, but there is no film these days that doesn't at some level use visual effects, even when you sort of like don't want to, but you're, point yeah. that you made a second ago was they decided to not make cg to solve yeah. these things so the visual effects are compositing solutions not um you know uh i think fluid simulations of fireballs right so there's no so there's no there's no set extensions or any anything like that then at this right i don't think so but as i said we've got a thing coming up with andrew on on uh yeah. fx guide so uh i'd have to check but um yeah, I do think in I a guess- modern in a modern film with this kind of budget, with this kind of expectation, to create this kind of artificial restraint is an interesting choice. I mean, because mm-hmm. you wind up then 
taking, you know, what we always think of as, you know, in almost every film we talk about, we think about, you know, visual effects in this kind of contemporary mindset, the kinds of tools that we have at our disposal today. And, and you know, there is a, a, a long and fantastically interesting history of doing visual effects, you know, all practically right before the, the digital age. And so this idea of, you know, making a, a creative choice to say, well, we're going to do everything practically in essence, right? And it's going to be this kind of analog approach where maybe there's some digital compositing, as we've said. But I think that, you know, for a visual effects team to be, um, you know, really given this kind of narrow, more narrow band uh, to sort of have, you, well, you can do it, but you can do it with, in this arena is a, is a fascinating challenge. The idea that um, the creative kinds of solutions that uh, an effects team would need to explore, to experiment with, to, you know, iterate and to try different things, to try to create the kinds of aesthetics and looks that they, you know, are maybe being, um, that are being sought, I think is, is fascinating. And it's, it's a, it would be super fun, I think, to work on a show like that because it would be so challenging and so also, different than the day-to-day -day thing that, you know, I think most visual effects artists experience, you know, in a, 100%. if you're working in a big shop or a smaller shop where you really are spending the bulk of your time, you know, not across the board, but a lot of time sitting in front of a, a screen, you know. But I was going to say to you, Jason, like it puts a huge amount of pressure on Hoyt the cinematographer because we're not basically saying well we're just going to shoot some stuff we'll shoot it raw digitally and we can do whatever we want with it because you know there's yeah. a huge amount of latitude and we can comp it and use a bit of this and a bit of that and we can take two takes and splice them together like you're actually requiring a cinematographer to nail the look and the feeling of the film visually pretty much getting the exposure the lighting and the blocking right in mm -hmm. camera which is Again, like it's a really interesting task to get that accomplished in achieving in-camera effects to this level. No, I agree. I, I, you know, to Matt's point and your point, like artificial or otherwise constraints are good things generally, right? Unless it just completely hinders you from doing the, you're getting to your vision. Constraints are always better than you had all the money in the world and you could do anything you want. Often that doesn't work out, right? Because you could just shoot and shoot and shoot and figure stuff out and I'll try it again. And this, so I, again, I fully applaud, you know, everything, all, the whole approach. And yes, the cinematography is gorgeous. And they even had different looks, right? Like there's the black and white, which is beautiful. There's the, sort of bleach bypassy vibe which is post explosion him in the in the boardroom being uh or the small office being sort of interrogated and and the earlier stuff that's a little more rich and while he's like you know ramping up to be the guy and there's a lot of subtle stylistic things that they did and having to nail a a camera angle that they can't sort of move around, you know, because they're going to have to composite optically something that's going to get shot at a specific angle. Like, you know, when there's a bunch of the stuff looking down at him in the bed and the blue, like lights that are being swung on a drill or what, however they're doing it, you know, to create those streaky, like uh, orbiting atom kind of, or electron kind of vibes. I mean, those are clearly shot at a specific angle too, because they're, they're real. 
So, you know, having to do all that older process that Matt was talking about, sort of line up, compositing, and having to think about it on the day when you're putting it all together, I mean, I would, that, that would be a dream to be I able think- to like have the time and the budget to focus on that. What do we um, think about and- the use of black and white? Like in visually, not narratively, but like, because I mean, it's I think it's quite stark to have black and white footage in a film like this. I loved it. Yeah, I, I did too. I mean, it, I think I think it, that's a great choice for the kinds of uh, separation they wanted to create visually mm-hmm. within the context of the narrative. I mean, it it works. Yeah, I, I mean, just wanted like, to say. You know, I just okay. wanted to say one thing about what we were talking about, like you know, the the discussion around the visual effects for this movie, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I mean, I really do think it's an interesting conversation to talk about, like, you know, we're not going to use computer graphics in this film and we're going to do things, you know, practically it's in camera. And I, I think, you know, there's this concept of, you know, like if you break your arm, right, and you get a cast on your arm, like, and then six weeks later, you get the cast off and like your arms all skinny, you have the skinny arm and the regular mm-hmm. arm, right? Because your muscles atrophy, right, over time. And you just, you know, so you have to take time to then get back to your arm being looking normal. And then, you know, the opposite of atrophy, right, is hypertrophy, right, I think is the term. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but, you know, hypertrophy is kind of this, this is sort of a hypertrophic approach approach to restraining the universe in which you're going to work. And by having to go through this process of experimentation, the amount of discovery, the amount of learning and the amount of kind Mm -hmm. of strength that you're going to build as a, as a team, as a supervisor is going to be really interesting. There's a lot of opportunity for, for growth there. I think that's a really exciting project to work on. My only thing is I, I do think that I'm, I would really, I would love to have this, you know, ability to peer into a window of an alternate universe. And I think I might've said this in the last show, but where, you know, all the tools were deployed, not for the kind of, you know, beautiful glory shot, but for maybe the horrifying glory shot of something that was done with, you know, state of the art, you know, thermal and fluid dynamic simulation software tools and creating something that was, um, a horrifying vision uh, of of scale and scope that would really convey the um, that that would have been interesting. That's an interesting alternative universe. It'd be cool, like when we talk about all these multiverse, you know, films that we watch. Like, I'd love to have the multiverse uh, version of this movie. It'd be interesting to see and in, in compare. We should, you know, discuss the elephant in the room, right? Which was the incredibly absurd press that came out and hype, I guess, before this film. And quite frankly, also we saw it with Barbie where they were discussing doing stuff without visual effects like it was real, which as I said earlier, and obviously we all agree with, that it's horrendously offensive to the artists that worked on it to imply that they didn't work on it. It's also horrendously um, offensive to imply that somehow somebody that uses digital tools is any less of a dedicated filmmaker or narrative yeah. storyteller than those that choose other technical tools that just happen to be analog. Because as I recently had a rant at, at SIDGRAPH, it's not as if they're really dropping nuclear bombs. It's not as if they're really driving the plastic car. It's not as if they're really running into plastic surf. Like it's all fake. It's whether well, yeah, it's, a it's not plastic- really you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer in that movie. Yeah. It's an actor. So, so the you imply that something's quote, doing it for real versus doing it digitally is just such a absurd uh, line to draw on the sand. It's all filmmaking techniques. And 
I'm sure you guys agree with me, some of the most filmmakingly literate, cinematically aware individuals I've ever met in my entire life are generalist CG people. Absolutely. Who just have a yeah. real yeah. understanding of lenses, have a real understanding of the pivot points of tripods and like yeah, this technical percent. understanding of their skill is not to the detriment of filmmaking. Um, and, and this always sort of comes up. People say, well, you know, there's bad CG. And I'm like, there are bad plots. There are bad oh, yeah. acting. There is <laughs> there's bad, bad screenplays and bad yeah. directors yeah. who make really verbose scripts. And so, <laughs> so no, totally. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's all right. Uh, I got it. But my point is that, yeah, so yes. so you can draw yeah. the example of a film from like 30 years ago, which they, you know, they, what was that film that The Rock was in? Like it's a, whatever it was, some film where they did a really bad face uh, digital version of him. Oh, the a, mummy, the, the mummy the three yeah. or something where he was just like, like obviously crab yeah. king or something or spider. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can also point to absurdly bad films uh, that had nothing to do with visual effects that are, Exactly. Just appalling. Scott so, Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim is an appallingly bad film, obviously. <laughs> you guys but, are insane. But anyway, my point is this. like, uh, we, we need to somehow combat this uh, narrative because I, it, it really I, reached a crescendo with us, I think. I wonder, too, though, like I've thought a little bit about this since, you know, I heard you, Mike, on um, on the, the business with Kim Masters, you had a great conversation with her following the previous conversation with the guy from the Writers Guild, I think. And then there was just an interview with Christopher Nolan just this week in the United States here on the NPR program, Fresh Air with uh, Terry mm -hmm. Gross from Philadelphia. And, great, great and interviewer. He kind of reiterated, he didn't say the same words, but he kind of reiterated his own personal um, distaste for doing things in the computer. Um, and saying that, you know, he, she said in one point in the interview that because it doesn't look real or, or it doesn't look good or whatever, or you don't like the way it looks. And he didn't correct her, you know, I mean, it's edited too, so who knows. But but I wonder sometimes when we have these stories and they really do catch fire, because I think they really are, they are genuinely offensive. I totally agree. But I yeah. wonder, are they really real stories that are, maybe they are, that are appropriately quoted? Or is it, we live in this age of you know, advertising based um, online media, right? And so there is this kind of clickbait headline. It's the thing that like either gets, you know, the incel, you know, Dark Knight fanboys all jacked up and like, yeah, it's all for real. Or it's this other thing where it offends the, you know, visual effects artists or whatever. And so people go to it and they look at it. And I just wonder sometimes like, you know, is it a real thing or is it this tempest in a teapot there have been a couple articles like that but there's just as many articles that i think come to the defense of visual effects and i yeah. don't know if the average moviegoer the average you know uh, patron of the cinema is going and saying well i'm not going to go see that it's cg because they have most well, every movie has it in it except for maybe oppenheimer yeah and people don't know it right i agreed and i think it comes it's two things. I think it's, it's a mixture of some directors. I'm not even going to say who, cause I don't even know. I'm just saying some directors like to tout the, like, I'm not reliant on other people to make my movies. Right. And I'm the, it's I'm me, the person, the great one. whether yeah. it's visual effects artists or someone else and visual effects artists usually get the short end of the stick in that conversation, mm -hmm. sadly. But it's also this, and I think I said this in our last brief exchange about this, there is also this 
unnecessary education of the consumer about the inner workings of the craft and the business of film that just is not necessary to judge a film. No, and if sadly judges the right word, because you decide what you're going to go see. And I just don't think it's right for the audience to go, you know, such and such movie didn't really have a great opening weekend. I don't think I'm going to see it. Right. Like, fuck, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. Like, did we ever have that when we were kids? Like, no, you're like, well, that movie poster looks awesome. That trailer looks awesome. Yeah. My friends said it was good. Now, granted, we have the internet and that's a whole Rotten different tomatoes issue. and all that. Yeah. But, but it's just like, you know, I think that's a, a large problem. The, you know, to your point, Mike, about like CG generalists, like I think we said years, like 10 years ago or whatever it was on our 2012 show, uh, the Cusack movie, like the artists who blew up those buildings in that, um, what I still think is a, an amazing destruction sequence of LA, <laughs> they're ha they have to be like structural engineers and demolitions experts to properly make a building collapse so you don't go, that looks like shitty CG, right? Like this is this is not a push button uh, job, solution, craft, art, you know, whatever you want to use to describe it. Be it digital it, or practical. Yeah. It, digital or practical. So, but the audience is being, you know, being like slowly trained to think that visual effects are easy or because of ai you know which is not easy but well it's kind of creating public, it's creating this like po this false polemic between the two as yeah. if somehow like this is good and this is bad like we have to all yeah. of a sudden turn everything into like you know sports ball where there's two teams fighting against each other and Absolutely. it's right. and politics you see, like, and it's and like you, it's so dumb you know right yeah. and you see everything everywhere at once that had great visual effects that were great for the film punctuated the story were not uh, uh they were over when they needed to be and they were subtle when they needed to be and they told the story and that was yeah. done by a tiny team using using very consumer i hesitate to use consumer but because of adobe yeah. or whatever you know more consumer focused tools mm -hmm. versus then say barbie which has equally as good visual effects on a much higher scale with a much bigger budget with uh, teams and teams of companies doing work that yeah, and also, are equally viable. And mm -hmm. if I can just back up Matt's point for a second, like I had uh, a oh, breakfast thing with Matthew Glesner, who was one of the founders of New Deal Studios, who did mm -hmm. the Batmobile in in A Dark Knight, right? Like he's mm -hmm. they were miniature guys, right? And Matthew, great director, great practical. Like New Deal was one of the best. Mm -hmm practical houses going you never heard then or now people like matthew dishing digital like they just did right. and yeah. he's worked on chris nolan films right which is why i bring him up but he's not like those people uh, are saying this it's not like you get on set the practical guys saying i don't want to talk to the digital guys because they're all jerks nor do you get the digital people being dismissive of the insanely great work that miniature people uh, do. In fact, they're probably the biggest fans of that work. Absolutely. Right? Mm -hmm. So, so Matt's point about this being a fake uh, dichotomy or fake um, polarization, I think it's so yeah. true. Like it's acting yeah. 
Yeah, it's acting like we're mortal enemies when, in fact, you, nothing could be further from the truth. I think, but I yeah, think it's, the it's biggest advertorial, the, it's advertorial garbage, basically. Yeah, and I think the biggest crime, if not a crime, literally, but the biggest crime, like in the celebration of the industry as a whole, is when really well known and well respected filmmakers. I think say things without clarification, uh, that, and that that I think feed that narrative. And I think it's yeah. you know it, it's not. I maybe it's totally unintentional, you know. And that's you know all right, okay, it's too bad. But like, I think it's important, you know, through, um, you know, these kinds of conversations or through you know big things like the Visual Effects Society or Seagraph or whatever, you know, for the continued articulation of this kind of thing. Like, hey, like you know. Like we did give you a lifetime, you know, achievement award, whatever, one of the visual effects society awards, like maybe don't throw everybody under the bus. You know, I don't think that was the intent. I, I can't imagine it was, I would be shocked if it was, but it's also like, you know, be careful how you talk about it and make sure that you can articulate a, a more richer mm -hmm. and um, even uh, handed uh, vision. Kind of just like what you said, Mike, I mean, just something that's more like, Hey, this is all, they, these guys all, you know, men and women who do this kind of work, they all, you know, respect each other and are really fascinated and intrigued by each other's varying skill sets that are all combined together to come up with these creative solutions to these difficult problems. Like, you know, that's the the camaraderie and the teamwork and the, the respect of one another's uh, differing skill sets is what makes you know, the world of filmmaking, the world of cinema, such a thing that I think that's why I think all of us and probably almost everybody listening, that's why we gravitate towards that universe because mm -hmm. it's, it's like, uh, the most exciting university on earth, you know, like that's mm -hmm. like all these different people from all these different backgrounds coming up with ways to, you know, create, you know, all kinds of magical stories and realistic stories that we can yeah, yeah watch and share. And with. like the, yeah, and like the general public who feeds into these narratives don't know that, sure, big visual effects movies have a lot of visual effects or even medium-sized visual effects-specific films. Yeah. They don't realize that sometimes the visual effects team gets like 30 seconds in between two takes <laughs> right. and are expected to do all this work. And yeah, get in there and do your thing. And yeah. then like, oh, get out, you know, first, first team's ready, you know, and then are expected to produce incredible results later, which when they're incredible are doubly incredible, you know, for what maybe they were given I, on the day. I think it's a pendulum, you know, and it swings back and forth and I think it'll come back. I think it's, it's exciting to, in the context of all of this dialogue, it's terrible that the strike is still going on. I hope that, you know, the, the writers mm -hmm. guild and the actors guild are able to meet, you know, and resolve uh, with the studios and come up with some kind of an agreement so people can get back to work. But it is exciting to see, you know, the, some of the stories recently about the Marvel uh, kind of visual effects artists and other artists in other parts of the world starting to talk about, um, I think it's exciting to start to hear them talking about um, unionizing. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, a thing that the visual effects universe um, that we've all been in for many decades, you know, it's like it, it would be, there've been fits and starts of that and little bits and pieces of it here and there. And it kind of comes and then it fades and it never has really been something that stuck around at least, um, you know, in the larger global community. I mean, with ILM Singapore, just having mm -hmm. shut down and I don't know exactly the reasons for that. It could be connected to the strike and some of the work slowdowns, but there could be other economic reasons for that too. But 
you know, it'd be really uh, exciting if if visual effects artists globally were able to start to form a more cohesive unit, both the digital and the practical, and be able to um, have a greater collective bargaining power within the larger industry. I think that would be an amazing thing. And long yeah, overdue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it used to be the case that, of course, our credits came after catering and and you know the drivers and the guy that just happened after to the be, Marquis uh, de Salad caterer. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say this: uh, to look, I you know I'm a, as clearly the case. I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan's direction work, but I you know I'm not a huge fan of not using digital. I'm I love using digital. My thing is, though, I don't have any problem with a director that chooses to do that. I really yeah. don't. Um, in the same way, I don't have a problem that he creatively chooses to use black and white or color. I think it's, these sure. are really interesting choices. I just have a huge problem with it being, you know, somehow thought to be um, a better way because inherently it's got better filmmakers that are more dedicated and more, you know, into well, proper you know, cinema. Interestingly, he did say it's not in a one flag those, to put in the ground. He did say in one of those right. interviews too that he he won't. If and this is we 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 joked about this in like we you know the one of the Batman movies with the guy was it Tom Hardy with the thing of smoke yeah. Or yeah. yeah yeah and how you couldn't understand anything that was kind of a meme right and people kind of joked about that when that movie came out but he did he did say something in one of these interviews where he says he never does like additional dialogue recording so if it's whatever's recorded on set is what's used and i just think and that's and he's like and some people disagree with it but it's a choice and i'm like well that's true it is a choice like but it's also an interesting um self-imposed restraint and it's a curious uh -huh. one because it's it's neglecting a whole host of tools and, and again it's you know it's he's the director you know that's the nature of the beast right it's a very hierarchical yeah. um process making a movie so it's not an inappropriate choice, but it's a really curious one in that, like, I'm not sure, at least for me as an audience member, like, what do you get for that? Like, why are you eliminating the use of certain tools? Like, Well, and also contextually, he knows what's being said. He wrote the script. So there is a little bit of a veil. No, I'm serious. There's like a little bit of a veil between him and the audience because he wrote it. He was on set. He knows what the guy said. He's been working on the movie for a year or two years. And by the time he hears in the theater, he literally hears a difference than the audience members do. Now, granted, you have sound mixers and audio, you know, tons of other people involved that could weigh in. But to your point, he's the director. And if he goes, no, sounds great. You know, that is that's a, a choice. But that's a great I, point. You make a great point that just, I just, this is the last thing I'll say about it, but like there is an inherent danger in any individual in a position like a film director or, you know, a, a, a titan of industry or something, right? Who becomes, you know, incredibly successful um, where like they're a brand, right? And one of the things that can happen and does happen, I've seen it up close and personal, um, where uh, people who have that kind of extraordinary success, where they become that kind of, um, you know, figure, an iconic figure in their industry, they often will, I don't think intentionally, but they will often be surrounded by more sycophantic people who, uh, because they love the artist, right, will have uh, or feel an inability to push back, to ever say no, or to say like, is that really a good idea? And so there's not that creative 
in some case, I'm not saying this is the case here, but it could be, you know, where it's like, there's just not that creative pushback that I think creates a collaborative yield that at times I think can be better than that kind of singular narrow vision. Like it, it, it's just, it would be a different result. And that's one of the, when you said that, it just made me think of, I've seen that happen in other artists and filmmakers from time to time. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a whole truth to power problem, right? Where yeah. people mm -hmm. just don't want to say no to somebody. And yeah, yeah. I, I'm not for a second though, suggesting that I have any belief that say Andrew Jackson wouldn't be blunt with Christopher Nolan because yeah, I mean I'm I'm speaking just yeah. oh yeah, I'm like not in the abstract. I'm not talking yeah. about these but, guys, but but I will say this: like filmmaking for me is a collaborative art form. Yeah, and it's absolutely. best when you can be open and honest and have those collaborative discussions. Yep. And you know what? Uh, it's it's like us, right? Like I really enjoy debating with you guys on points because I learn something. But I, it's not personal. It's not about no, me versus never. you. No, it's about not. this yeah, idea yeah. versus that idea. And, and when you get those sets where you can, you know, have those discussions and, uh, and look, I think the other thing that I would say <clears throat> is a it's great much idea this... can come from anybody on the set yep. and anybody on the filmmaking team from yeah, the I mean, I think highest the... person on the, the director, the producer, all the way down to like the production assistant and the, you know, I, everybody I think the can best have story a of that is, I think the best story of that is, is, uh, Thor Ragnarok when they, Taika told the story of like the kid from the Make-A-Wish Foundation or something that was there on set for the right. day. And yeah. he yelled out the line, like, I know that guy from, he's from my work. Like right. that was from like that kid. Right. And yeah. I think I got the story right. And he's like, that's a great line. Put it in. Like, you know, good ideas are good ideas and right. literally can come from anywhere. Yeah. But I think we should also acknowledge that we want to live in a world where people take swings and if they don't always connect i'm not talking about this Absolutely. film i'm just generally speaking i'd much prefer 100%. to be sitting here than saying why doesn't anyone try doing anything interesting these days it's all vanilla and i would just say stuff. that i don't think this film connected but oh you had to spoil it you had a really good finish there i really seriously I like you are yes. for somebody that's a bright guy you're a freaking moron at times that was a perfect finish you know, i had my, to go spoil it i have now i have own, to defend it have my off own for another round restraints oh my that God. i function within you know <laughs> anyway so, i'm just joking yeah. i'm just joking yeah okay so uh, we need to finish up because this is like an epic yeah. ep, but an epic ep covering two, two movies. whole films yeah i know i know i know <laughs> nevertheless um so uh yeah so as you've heard i've just got back from la been having a fun time at Sidgraph and doing other stuff there and genuinely found it to be a really, really interesting uh, time because so many great filmmakers and uh, technical people were gathered together. And so in LA, when you've got a Sidgraph on and you've got all these great oh, yeah. minds. Um, and I just want to say one, I mean, it's a hundred people that I could name drop right now, but can I just name drop one, which was I briefly, but meaningfully uh, ran into Jim Blinn um, you know, this is the guy that. who oh, actually yeah. Yeah. invented bump mapping. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we've had him on FX Guide, and I'll try and find the link to the the uh, story that I did and put it in the show notes. But like, he is unfortunately, obviously, as people do, older. Uh, so he's now retired, um, and you know, he was always been a uh, a giant, both physically yeah. and uh, and historically. But yeah, it was just because it was the 50th anniversary of SIDGRAPH, there were a lot of just amazing people uh, at mm. SIDGRAPH. But Very it's so cool. great. To, I felt it really good that not only myself, but loads of other people were 
going, oh my God, that's Jim Blinn, because, you know, he's not a TikTok celebrity. He's not a, you know, on yeah. social media doing stuff. He's just somebody that's genuinely contributed to our understanding of the world, our understanding of computer graphics. Mm -hmm. And if you know the story of Jim Blinn, he like turned down big, big numbers for pay to stay doing interesting work with NASA and stuff. So yeah, it's great, I think, to be in that. You know, like I think it's something like going to a concert or a football match or something where everybody is there kind of enjoying the thing that you enjoy. You know what I mean? Like it's really mm -hmm. uh, a fun yeah, experience. Camaraderie, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and it's like you're going to geek out because we all were geeking out that there was Jim Blinn or, you yeah, know, there so was cool. like whoever. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's really nice to be with your people. <laughs> I also want to uh, thank yeah. uh, all the people that said hello to me in person and said how much they liked this show uh, and the Suffered FX Guide because like, that was great. And it happened a lot and people were uh, really terrific and saying that they'd been listening to us for ages because sometimes they're now like in senior jobs at ilm and stuff and i was like really and they're like yeah yeah because we have been doing this guys for a while <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. yeah but uh yeah so i really appreciate people saying it i really appreciated seeing everybody and it was just a great time a bunch of stuff coming up uh on fx guy man that's me what are, what are you not to jason uh i uh um we've been doing some a little R and D here and there. We have uh, a big job coming up soon with some international travel that I'm hoping we can talk about. And uh, I'll be in I'll be in London in October for another job. Uh, and I do want to say, just as reference to your last point about big swings, my favorite big swing movie that I feel landed, but I'm so happy that at least it was made, even if no one, if someone didn't like it, is Bo is Afraid. Please go watch I that movie. Seen that yet. If you want to see someone just taking a giant bat and swinging it as hard as he can, that movie is incredible. I think it all works, but it, it's, it's incredibly angsty. Uh, it's not a relaxing watch, but it, it will make you think it is very, it's a great movie. Uh, Ari Aster's third movie, and it's fantastic. That's all I'll say. Well, well, we're on it. Do you have a movie recommendation, Matt? I think I mentioned it previously. Oh, wait. The best you movie might have I mentioned one. Yeah, I think no, so. No, well, that one, that one for sure, <laughs> Batman and Little Boy. But I uh, also would highly recommend um, two, two films that I watched recently. Uh, the movie from, I think, 1981 or 82. Uh, it's a Sidney Lumet-directed film with a script by... Um, that other guy who writes all of the good scripts. Damn, my oh, the, is... the script guy. Yeah. But it's The Verdict, another Paul Newman film. Oh, yeah. Which ah, is yeah, that's right. Isn't that a mammoth? Movie. Isn't that David Mamet? David Mamet. There you go. That's who yeah, wrote yeah, the script. Yeah. And uh, excellent, excellent movies. Just so that's fun to watch. Film, Great it, yeah. character film. And, yeah. and, uh, and the best movie I saw this year is uh, the Danish uh, Icelandic movie Godland. Uh, right. Which is ah, just bonkers. Looking forward to seeing that. Really I haven't cool. Seen it yet. And I, I just want to say. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I just watched the other one that you guys recommended, the one in, um, is it in Norway uh, or in Sweden, where the, uh, with the Nazis and the guy, um, what's it oh, called? Oh, Sisu? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that oh, yes. I mean, Based on your recommendation. It was, it's yeah. it's light, very light, fun, fun violence, slight, Nazi slight killing. glorification of violence. Uh, yeah. But yes. Well, they're, they're yes. Nazis though, you know. They're but Nazis, I was yeah. just going to say, the, the last thing I was going to say is I got a new semester starting up here in a couple of days, the fall semester at the university where I chair this department and it's going to be exciting and a fun semester. Um, 
but I was just wanted to say, uh, go Australia Women's World Cup. That'd be good. I want to see the we Australians win. Oh, wait, we, what? We, yeah. Oh Sorry, no, yeah, mate. that's right. England already, right? Was it yeah. England, Australia? Are you are you winding me up? Because this is like this is like national level everything oh, in this country. These yeah. are the highest ratings ever in Australian television. Anyway, I think uh, you're just winding me up. Okay. Yeah. We are in running for the bronze, <laughs> third place. Yeah. But, go so. third place. Now actually go Sweden, right? I mean, come on. Having said that, we have never done this well in men's or women's soccer ever before. So it's been a tremendous boost to uh women's soccer. it has I mean, been we've been watching everything we can watch and it's uh, on at crazy hours but it has been so much fun i've been loving it oh, it's the it's we way the better game. than the premier league stuff that is yeah, we, now we went also out. started I'll, i might post a picture of me in full french supporter attire um because i went out definitely uh i was very i mean when, not when australia's playing players i'm obviously for australia but if australia isn't playing then i was for play uh for the French team. Anyway, enough of that. Okay, guys, thanks so much for being here on the show. Um, we have a whole host of uh, other films coming up and uh, some really interesting television shows. We were going to do some Emmy stuff, but the Emmys have been pushed back now till, uh, till January. January, yeah, right. And yeah. Uh, about the same time that the Golden Globes aren't being broadcast. <laughs> but anyway, uh, a whole host of other stuff coming up. And uh, we, again, so appreciate all your comments. So please keep them coming. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much, guys. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.